Welcome to Democracy in Color with Steve Phillips, a color-conscious podcast about politics. I'm your host, Steve Phillips. I'm joined, as always, by my co-host, Charlene Chang. And now that we are out of February, I hope you got all of your consuming of Black entertainment content out of the way, because apparently we can only do Black stuff during the 28 days of the shortest month of the year. I am kidding, of course. And we are now in Women's History Month, and it could not be more appropriate time to have as our guest the original founder and host of the democracy in color podcast the person who coined the phrase democracy in color the person who was responsible for bringing me and charlene together on our first book writing collaboration eight years ago and the founder and president of she the people the nationally renowned network of women of color making political and social change our friend, the amazing Amy Allison. Yay! Amy, so good to see you. I'm so Hello. happy. It's like coming home, seeing seeing you two, and uh, I never feel like I'm that that far from uh, both of you in, in terms of our work. And you know, you're both friends, old friends. So I'm just so happy to be here. Yeah, I I told Steve one of the challenges is for me to just not go off the farm and just use this as a big old hangout with Amy. Like I haven't seen you in so long because of pandemic that there's so much I want to catch up with you on, and and we have so many good times together and lots of memories. And so we're gonna try to try to keep it focused, but also have some fun. And it is just wonderful to have you here. I usually say to the guests, you know, welcome. But yeah, it's like you said, it's like welcome home, and we've missed you. And you're right, you're never far you know, from our minds. And we're just so happy to have you here finally on the show and get into talking about all sorts of stuff today. Love it. I love it. I, I, I do want to say that I was invited to speak to a group of community college students two weeks ago with a, a friend and a Peralta Community College board member. And uh, he's a professor there. There were about 50 young people on the call. And we after we talked about women of color, they wanted to know about Brown as a New White. Can you tell oh, us wow. about the book? I said, actually, you should ask Steve Phillips to come on. <laughs> because yeah. this is having that foundational understanding of the country helped me to, to bring She the People as an organization, as an idea into view. So I'm so well, grateful we, for my time with you. Charlene's going to flesh was, out a little bit yeah. more of the bio, but just on that point, let's just share the, the, the listeners. So, uh, well, the, the, the word that slid through and Amy said old friends is old. I, Amy, tried, I try not yes, to say old friends yes. because so, of the word old. Amy and I were in college <laughs> together back in the decade. And by then when Amy came to work um, at, at Democracy in Color, well, we came to Democracy in Color. One of her first things is like, Steve, you should write a book. I still don't know whether or not that was her way to get me out of the office for a year or so, <laughs> which is uh, which worked. But I was also say, got you out of the office for like the next many years. <laughs> yeah. And so but then in terms of getting, you know, we needed like a, we'd never done a book before, needed a coach and a writer. And so uh, one of Amy's good friends, uh, Elmez Abinader is like, and she wasn't like a uh, Pulitzer or something, a judge or something in that regard or whatnot in terms of her work. So she has this whole network. So I met with her. And she did two things. One was she like really buoyed my confidence, right? Which I don't think she even fully realized. She said, we need this book. Mm. And I was all like, oh. And then she connected me to Charlene. And who was just, you know, in her life cycle was coming up to be able to try to figure out what's going to be her next step. And so we connected and I told Charlene I wanted to write a book in four months. <laughs> so here we are eight <laughs> years later. <laughs> it was so clear that what I'd heard in terms of your own political work. I mean, way back from the Jesse Jackson for president days, which 
which dates us back in 88. I think you were head of. I wasn't going to say it, but if you're going to go ahead and admit I'm going to go because I'm, fi- I'm 52. I always- <laughs> I, wait, I'm okay being 52. It's all, it's all good. But I do remember in conversations about this kind of evolving set of data that was pointing to where we need to go as a country. And so now we have a book and actually two books. Congratulations. I hear that a new book is, has been, been born. I'm really excited to read it. Uh, Sign, seal, delivered. That manuscript, a, a little bit behind schedule, but better better for it. But, but nonetheless, answer. right on time. And, and better for it right. for the readers and the country. But thanks. Yeah. There are people in my life who I just feel like the universe for sure sent close messages because otherwise it wasn't even like we, we didn't, you know, I didn't know the two of you yet. And because of Almaz and uh, she's the co-founder of an organization called Vona Voices of Our Nation's Arts Foundation, which is a network of writers of color, uh, the only one of its kind, um, almost two decades old now. I was a pretty avid member of that group and she connected me through Amy and then to Steve. Speaking of good work though, the show today is about the amazing Amy Allison, so just so everyone knows who's listening, Amy is the founder of the organization, She the People. And we'll talk more about that later. But she was also, as we mentioned, formerly the president of Democracy in Color. And as Steve mentioned, she's the one who started the earliest iteration, the first iteration of this podcast and was the original host five years ago. And she just left huge shoes to fill. And I still listen to your earlier episodes. And I go, you know, Amy had a long career also as um, she had many, many lifetimes in one lifetime, amazing work she's done. But one of them is she was a journalist, including a radio journalist. She has a great radio voice. And so many of you who are listening now may have started listening to this podcast by following her. So in that sense, it's a big old family reunion. Amy Allison is also a writer innovator and champion of racial and gender justice. We're going to talk more about her work on that area. So let me just break down a little bit of history. In 2016, as president of Democracy in Color, she led and organized the first ever Women of Color event at the Democratic National Convention. In 2017, Amy launched Get Information, a national call for Black women to support Stacey Abrams in her race for governor of Georgia. Then and unknown Stacey I was going to say 2017 when people were still gone. Who? Oh, re- um, I don't know. Um, we we got to think about it. We don't we haven't heard of her before. And then in 2019, with She the People, Amy organized and moderated the nation's first presidential forum for women of color attended by presidential candidates and more than 1,000 women from across the country. As a writer, Amy continues to make the case across platforms that women of color are the saving grace of American democracy, and nobody is doing what she's doing in that specific nature, in that specific way. And she has dedicated her life to achieving a multiracial democracy. So thank you so much for all the work you're doing, Amy, and welcome. Thank you, and that's lovely. I can't believe that much time has passed. Yeah, well, we'll just, we'll skip past that part. So, but this, it also, turns to the whole pandemic piece, it's been two years and you just mm. look up and time has flown by, by, right? So to catch everybody up, right? So Amy, well, you know, was the president of Democracy in Color and then founded um, She the People um, as, you know, one of the premier uh, women of color organizations in the country and then went off to do that. And See the People has really taken off as well. And I haven't been able to fully keep, uh, keep up with it. And so... Can you share, Amy, well, first, what is She the People? And then what have you guys been up to the past couple of years? Um, She the People is a national network uh, dedicated to uh, building the power, political power and voice of women of color. And we do uh, three things. We, you know, get behind the leaders who are going to 
advance our justice issues and do it in a way that builds solidarity across race and expands democracy by having campaigns like Stacey Abrams that bring more and more voters, uh, talk to more and more people that have been ignored by both parties. And, and, and She the People tells the story of women of color. You know, <laughs> so funny is I'm talking to uh, people who were at the beginning of, you know, founding a democracy and color. So this is all like full circle. There would be no She the People without the support of, of democracy and color who really incubated the 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 idea and the and um, the, the concept behind it. Because when we looked at politics in 2016 and you listened to CNN or MSNBC or, or read the Times or the Post, you listened to so-called influencers and and you know your political so-called experts. They had categories of people who mattered in America. Yeah. Mm-hmm. When they had something called a women's vote, mm-hmm. they always talked about white women. Mm-hmm. Yep. When we had Women's History Month, when we had Equal Pay Day, when we talked about getting the right to vote, when we talked about um, who was a swing voter, it was always centering white women. But I knew something that a lot of reporters and so-called experts didn't didn't know, which was uh, Black and Latina and Asian American and Indigenous women were far more justice-oriented, progressive, and more likely to vote for Democrats. They were such excellent organizers. And, you know, this is a story that reporters missed. So in 2018, when we had our first summit in San Francisco, I said to some reporters, you covered the Trump-Clinton race, and you missed perhaps the most important driver of American politics today. You missed it. Don't miss it. And uh, there's a group of people who the data and the stats and the stories have erased or ignored or maligned in the history of American politics. And now you have a chance for the first time to make the American political story have women of color at the center, certainly for Democrats. And so she the people is telling that story. So we've been working with reporters. I've actually uh, met with hundreds of political reporters. Wow. A lot are younger women, mm-hmm. a lot of women of color. And when I started meeting, these are like That's coffee great. meetings. These are like, yeah. now they're Zoom. And it's right. like, you know, here are the trends, here's the mm-hmm. data. And what we found through the work is that so much of politics is around helping to expand the imagination and helping to make people who had been not visible in public visible. What women of color as a, as a group, who we are, how, how many people there are, you know, what we think, how we vote, all of that was like new news to people who report on politics. So when we would say things like, like we didn't have a lot of money when we started. So we had uh, this one dude who was, <laughs> who was a grad student his last year and he was a, uh, doing political data. And he ran some numbers for us. And he said, oh, whoa, in the, in the states that matter, um, in terms of electoral college, women of color in most of those states are one out of four voters. Amazing. Then out we would say voters. one out of four, that's one stat. And that was reported. So mm. we actually, so She the People is through, through really telling this new narrative, helping to really drive support for funding different kinds of candidates and different kinds of issues and paying attention to a group of voters who 20% of the population who are the fastest growing and most progressive force in this country. So 
you know, we have a lot to do, but that's what we've been up to. And, 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 and we're going to get back, we're going to back uh, candidates this year. That's a new, a new thing for us. Right. And what you're talking about too, in terms of the, what the reporters keep missing, right. In terms of those different dynamics and whatnot that, you know, there's a, for, for many decades of the past, you know, probably since the 60s, 70s has been this whole thing about the suburbs has been code word for white, right? We've got to get to the suburban, you know, thing, the, the suburb, you know, 2004, like the exurbs and the suburban, the suburban soccer moms. And that was how they thought they thought about politics. But what's happened is that largely in a lot of ways, by you know, women of color in particular, the suburbs have begun to diversify. And so just because you're, you're going to appeal people, I mean, that, particularly that like in, in, in Atlanta, the surrounding areas are actually now very racially diverse. And so that whole old code word that they were trying to use to substitute for white is no longer appropriate. We saw it, I think, in a lot of the, a lot of the elections. So you're mentioning in terms of what you're going to be doing. So 20, we're in 2022, it's a midterm year, Stacey's up again. Yeah. What's your guys' focus going to be in 2022? First, we wanted to play in primaries and we want to support helping to uplift the profiles introduce a set of candidates. Most of them are federal candidates running for Senate or, or, or Congress. Some are statewide, like Stacey Abrams and B. Wynn in, in Georgia. And others are, uh, like today is the election in, in Texas. And primaries are the place where amazing women of color's campaigns get stopped. Mm-hmm. And so we said, okay, what, yes. what is needed here? I learned so much by working with you all, supporting Stacey Abrams in how important it is to talk to gatekeepers, but also the population in general and reporters and other people about the possibilities of a candidate like Stacey. And what we found out with Stacey Abrams is back then, people didn't recognize her name. Even my friends who had moved to Georgia, Atlanta area didn't know who she was. And I remember showing my friend who's also Black, Hey, here's the picture of the woman I I, I think should, you know is governor. We're getting behind her. She says she's a black woman. Ah, she'll never win in the state. Right. Oh man! And we went wow. from we'll never believe it to it feels pretty real and pretty close. And we need to do that work with a lot of candidates. So we're going to focus our effort in the Senate races where we have no black women in the Senate right now. It's a huge travesty for American democracy. Not Absolutely. only black. Black women not having a representative, but Black women for the Democratic coalition, the multiracial coalition, are the most likely to be pointed to for leadership in bringing together that coalition. So it isn't just Black women for Black women's sake. It's we need a, a Black woman, at least one, maybe two in the, you know, right, you know, this year in the Senate. So Val Demings in, in Florida, Judge Sherry Beasley in North Carolina, we're going to be supporting them and doing some strategic outreach to women of color there. In Ohio, in primaries, we, we have a, a Morgan Harper, who's a Black woman who actually went to Stanford Law School, who's in the primary for Ohio Senate, running against Tim Ryan. Now, Tim Ryan is kind of a moderate white dude. He didn't even support abortion rights until 2009. He was late to the game. You know, I feel like we're a, a, a state like Ohio. There's a story about the suburbs, but there's also a story about rural states. We need to tell a new story about that. So those are some of the states we're going to be involved in. And I think each one requires us to look at how we're going to win. Like, look at look at Florida. We all know because we've worked together in, in supporting candidates in, in, in Florida in the gubernatorial race a few years back. We know it's about a 1%. Uh, and you're the data guy, Steve, so correct the, me. The, but, mar- the margin of difference. Margin yeah. is less than 1%. 1%. It's 
Wow. So when we, so Congresswoman uh, Demings was in town uh, last last week. I talked to her. I said, "Look, if we look at from a woman of color perspective, what's the population in Florida that can close that gap?" And I think she mm. said it was something like forty thousand. That's Afro Caribbean women. Wow. That's, that's Afro Caribbean women. Those are the Haitians. Those are the Jamaicans. And so a story about the politics of of a place like Florida, which is around, has been dominated by thoughts like, okay, Cuban-Americans yes. and are largely conservative. Right. That isn't the story for a Democrat and, and a, a Black woman to be elected statewide. So we got a lot of work to do, but I'm, I'm very excited about this year. How exciting. That, I'm, I'm just thrilled to get my own update from you because I've been <laughs> wanting to know personally what you've been up to with She the People, and I am not disappointed. It is, of course, I'm I, as I expected, you've got so many things going on and so many fronts, especially during this midterm year election with, I think, also women of color in pol- politics as a story trending, you know, people getting getting more understanding and that there's definitely been more coverage, especially, I would say, uh, on the front of Black women in politics and um, and others. Yeah, so just just great to hear all of that. Speaking of you know black women in the mm-hmm. national scene, right? Not going the, on. Not the Supreme Court. So it's, not a small position. Yes, Biden getting ready <laughs> to appoint somebody. Have you guys been engaging in that issue, Amy, in terms of the Supreme Court piece? Uh, yeah, what an what an exciting moment uh, for America after two hundred thirty three years to have a black woman nominated. And we have such a richness of women with the experience and readiness uh, to serve with the credentials. And, uh, you know, so it was it was leading up to it when Biden said during campaigning that he was going to nominate a black woman in the Supreme Court. I remember sitting at home watching TV, the debate with him and the, the, Senator Bernie Sanders. I remember him saying that and going, ah, he spoke directly to the heart of the voters who were most likely and you know to come out for him yeah. and it made a difference a huge difference not only to women of color but to the black women yeah. who were you know behind a lot of the organizing in in across the country for him so for him on the anniversary of making that promise to actually announce that was quite something. And we haven't had a lot of wins. I mean, we've got some wins, but not a right. lot. Well, that was I, a huge I, win. I'm a little more, I'm a little more, I don't know, cynical is quite the right word, but I was, I, mean, I was thrilled, of course, that Biden made that promise, but there was a political calculation about he was being pushed to commit to putting a woman of color on the ticket as his vice presidential candidate. Mm-hmm. And so he didn't want to make that commitment. And because of this whole thing about the white suburban women, that's who we should actually be gravitating towards. So he wouldn't make that commitment. He says, well, I'll commit to a black woman Supreme Court justice because that might never happen. But now here we are with a black woman vice president. Listen, listen. Good time to be alive. I, you know, she, the people was one of these out front organizations pushing for a woman of color on the ticket, black woman on the ticket with Biden. And we'd held a series of listening sessions where we brought women together from the swing states, uh, mostly organizers or local elected officials to talk about what mattered and, and how they're feeling. And what we heard in those listening sessions uh, and what we ultimately put out in USA Today in an exclusive was you know, kind of shocking for the Biden campaign to hear. We, we heard 
women in Pennsylvania or Georgia or um, in or Arizona or Wisconsin hadn't heard directly from the Biden campaign, even though these were key, key states in Michigan, other places they hadn't been reached out to. We heard that it was important to have a black woman on the Supreme Court. We heard that having a, a woman of color uh, as vice president was going to help them you know, increase turnout in, in terms of the work that they did. And they weren't that happy at that moment with, yeah. the, with the campaign. And when we put that out, it was, you know, I kind of, you know, <laughs> <laughs> you know, whenever you take a step out, you, mm. you both want to encourage a can- candidate That's right. but it's to do the love, right thing. Yeah. It's a tough love. Tough love. You got to yeah. do the tough love. But yeah. in no formulation of the 2020 campaign, it, there's no way to win without women of color. Exactly. And so we had to get them to listen to us and to really force the issue. And I yeah. think that was ultimately it, it worked. We didn't know it would all, all come together like this, but, but it did. It, it, I think it helped to contribute to at least what we've seen happen in the last yeah. few years. You mentioned the 233 years, and it's just like you say, put that number out there. It's like, so they couldn't find a qualified black person in that whole of black, you know, black person, black woman, in all that time. But it made me think about, and actually, I put this in the book. I don't know if you, well, you sure remember when we went to Charlie. And I don't know if you know this story. So Amy and I took a delegation of students to the South in 1988 to do voter registration work. We called it Project Democracy. So we got to meet Rose Sanders, a voting rights activist, and her husband, Hank Sanders. And them, you were the, we think that you stayed at their house and whatnot back in the day. And so then we brought Rose to speak at Stanford. I don't remember this name. It was like it was 1990. And she's speaking at Kresge Auditorium, Law School Auditorium. And that the only thing I remember from that speech is she says, because she had gone to Harvard and Harvard Law School. And here she is speaking at Stanford, right? These elitist institutions that says, we didn't get into these institutions because we're mm-hmm. smart. If we were just about intelligence, my mama would have gotten in here a long time ago. <laughs> and so I've actually put that into the so book true. about that's why we've never had a woman, a black woman governor. It's not that we haven't had intelligence, it's that people's perception of what actually talent looks like. And so finally crossing that off on the uh, on the Supreme Court piece too. Yeah. And I think it's important to, to think about this as an expression of a reflection of the political power and influence of Black women. It it really is. It's not. It it, it is a result of in a, in a thousand different ways, people organizing over the years to push for this moment. When we look at the profile of Judge Jackson, I mean, you have somebody who um, has impeccable credentials, but is also writing on so much activism over the years. And she's got the humility and the self-awareness. And the brains. Um, and yes, and the brains. And, you know, I think that was interesting that she, she also had, was a public defender. Mm-hmm. There's never been anyone there yeah. who is represented people who didn't have anything, didn't have, couldn't afford legal representation other ways. It's in so many ways, it's a very exciting moment for us. Yeah. I want to ask both of you about, because we talked up top about, you know, we're in Black History Month and now it's Women's History Month in terms of how do you, well, maybe starting with you, Amy, as a black, you know, as a black person coming out of Black History Month and as a woman in, you know, Women's History Month, how do you experience and understand and think about and then mark, I guess, the Women's History Month? What does it kind of mean to each of you, actually? No, for, for, for me, you know, in this in this new world and this new possibility of this America being centered on women of color, you have to ask yourself, what would it look like if women's history was marked by the history of women of color? We've been here since the very founding of the country, 
And, you know, there are whole populations of people who've never gotten their due. So for, for me, the traditional ways of marking a Women's History Month just don't cut it. It's not just about history, it's about futures too. And, you know, it's women's future, mm. present and future. So that's how I kind of think about it and try to try to think about how we can do our part to tell this new generation about the what I call the godmothers, people that come before, and you know the traditions that we're part of. And in some ways, we're telling a story that doesn't hasn't been widely told. You know, right? Well, in terms of not widely told, and then being here from the beginning, right? The this is you know the research from directing in the book. The earliest records we have of the very first slave sale. Mm. was of a woman named Isabella and a man named Antonio. So we we go back to Isabella in 1619 in terms of our whole history here. Charlene, how do, how do you experience it yourself and then both also as a mother of a daughter, how are you marking it? Yeah, I think I have similar complex feelings the way you do about Black History Month because on one level, I'm like, y'all, last time I checked, we, we make up over half the planet and mm-hmm. over half this country, you know, collectively. Um, but and then when I think about traditionally how I think Amy touched upon this, how women's history was taught or just generally this mainstream concept of when we talk about women, we're really talking about white women and the achievements. If any historical stories are being told, they were told about individual stories of white women and not to take away from the challenges that those women did face because of the long history of patriarchy and sexism around the world, but let's just say in this country. So yes, I'm really grateful for a lot of the strides that many white women made historically in this country, but I am really wanting um, more and more just stories of women of color. And I've been seeking them out and sharing them with my daughter. And luckily, you know, she does go to a school where she gets a lot of good. Uh, her teachers are really in tune with it. And they put up pictures of diverse women, different kinds of accomplishments and different fields. I, I just actually, the kind of daughter I have, uh, very inquisitive and curious and and strong. We're just constantly having conversations about sexism and racism and mm-hmm. and what it was like to be a girl not so long ago, what it was like to be a woman not so long ago that I feel the same way you do about Black History Month, Steve, is that you embody it. It's in your life. You're Black every day. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm a woman every day, raising a girl every day. I am a woman of color every day and raising a girl to think and see the world that way. And we are just constantly, we're immersed in it. And so I'm grateful for the one month and opportunities, even like today, to just kind of say, yeah, there's a particular opportunity for us to really focus on this topic. But I I do want more. I want it to be just, you know, like, why can't we have the whole year where it is laid on top of everything, every lens we see it through, because we've been here since day one. And we are also doing tremendous amount of work for a f- fundamentally for today's topic, you know, the democracy that we have had so far and the one that we really aspire to. And I always give props to, you know, through my daughter's teaching, I always say undoubtedly none of, not, you know, so much of what all women of color have today is because of Black women and the, the trials and tribulations they've had to go through. And I tell her that people like Katanji Brown-Jackson, her ancestors not that long ago, a woman was a slave. 
and to go from in a very ultimately short amount of time to be a woman who has a lifetime position on our um, Supreme Court is as amazing and not to be taken right. for granted. Yeah. Right. Be taken in, terms of, for in terms of the, the time horizon, too, because right. in this country, look at it, it's like, well, you know, yeah, there was like, you know, sexism and racism a long time ago and black and white, you know, era and whatnot. And so, but it, it's as you're talking, I was thinking about it, it's like in terms of the what, you know, your daughter is able to think about in terms of, you know, career and opportunities, life opportunities. So, it, within a lifetime. I remember my mother my mother telling me that when she was coming up, the only options job-wise available for women were as a secretary or a teacher. That's right. And she became a teacher. It was a teacher. It was mm-hmm. great and really proud of that her whole life. But that's my mom, right? So it's not like I'm it's not, like, not, you know, no, centuries ago. Right? I, I, I just, it wasn't that it, long ago. When I started um, doing some research on my own family, it's, you know, it's my dad's in his mid eighties and his, you know, my great grandfather was born in slavery. It's not wow. that long ago. Yeah. That you know long what ago. I was thinking when we think about like who we celebrate, you know, Charlene, you're talking about black women. There's so many amazing black women that have made this country what it is, but also, and in addition, there are the Titans like Grace Lee Boggs. Grace Lee Boggs was an organizer out of uh, Detroit and one of my heroes so you take, you take Grace, Grace Lee Boggs and you look at her political and personal philosophy and she's a humanitarian. Yeah. And I think when you're in this position where you have racism and sexism as systems, it's not always the case, but a lot of the case where you develop a heart for people because you understand what injustice and inequality looks like. You've experienced it. You've seen it. You've witnessed it. And so, so much, I remember, I remember we all had a meeting and I was running late for the meeting. I was running around like a chicken with my really? hair. That, that up. never, running that late. never happened. I, running late. I'm so running surprised. Late. <laughs> oh my God, right. Listen, listen, I had to work. I had to work on that in terms of getting myself organized. <laughs> I came in late and I sat down and we were talking about something and I don't know how we got around to this conversation, but I was like, you know, she, she, the people's not just about politics to me. It's not, mm. not just about politics. Like in the spirit of Grace Lee Boggs, it's, it's about something bigger. And I remember this was the first time I had articulated that I'm doing this work for love, love, mm. love for your own and others, for justice, to make justice a law of the land, for, you know, to, to create a, a country where everyone belongs and to make this democracy live up to its greatest potential. Those are the values that connect us and help help us to see, you know, beyond party or beyond an election cycle or beyond, you know, one candidate to something that's greater. And that's the thing that I think where we we need where the, the potential of, you know, this month could be is unite, uniting some of the greatest humanitarian voices that have come from this country who are united in sort of in a common um, set of values and vision. That's what the country needs. And I, I think about that a lot. I think this is the time to like to, to celebrate those people and those voices. And yeah, I want to I touch on that bef- uh, before we go at this point, you were talking about I mean, in terms of the values and orientation that animate, animate your work and your politics, right? And so, and I don't want to, you know, let the, the pod go without noting and, and, and saying something about the reality of what's happening in the world. And you've got you know, Russia invading Ukraine and all of the refugees and the difficulty that you know, we're dealing with in that situation. In terms of back in the day in our, in our colleges, you came into college in the ROTC program. 
you were in this military training piece. I remember you saying that they had this drill that you're supposed to, you're supposed to be chanting, Ch kill, kill, kill without mercy. And then you were conscious objector. So can you talk a bit about your own journey in that regard in terms of thinking about, you know, it's the values piece, you mentioned the love, and how does that inform the work that you're doing now? I've been thinking a lot about my military experience, and I actually spent a week trying to think and write about its relevancy now. Uh, that was during the, the Trump years. You know, I joined, I joined the military at 17. I had a recruiter that told me that that was the best way for me to pay for college. And, mm. you know, I went to boot camp my first time in the South, uh, was Fort Jackson, South Carolina. I spent a lot of a lot of time now thinking about the women and the, really I was a girl mm. who were there in basic training with me, mm. who we bunked together, we marched together, we bivouacked together, we shot our rifles to, together, we ate together. And most of the women in my 200 person company, all women, half the women were black. Mm. So we just got finished saying, you know, you know black women are 7% of the <laughs> population. Half of the women were black. And, and this was my first exposure to why so many people end up in the military. Like, yeah, some, some people have this, they want to serve, but most of us join because we want to be, we want to live into something that we think is possible for us. Mm -hmm. I wanted an education. Other people wanted to get out of situations that were limiting or dangerous or you know, they wanted to, to be able to work and, and have a job with dignity. They wanted to serve their community, all good reasons. And yet that was my first real in deep conversations late at night, you know, dangling off the bunks, you know, with our dog tags. You know, I, I, I remember these conversations with women and I came to start to understand economic injustice. Like, why is this our only opportunity and, and racial injustice? Why are we black women facing these things? And it wasn't until, you know, I went off to college and I started being exposed to civil rights movement and, and Gandhi's work that I started to put things together for myself. And in my heart, you know, that had been shaped by military training in which I was told that I am not paid to speak. I am paid to follow orders. Wow. And that was drummed in so deeply to mm -hmm. me. Even now, sometimes I, I hesitate to fully speak my voice because at an early age, I was taught to be quiet. Mm -hmm. So for me, when I uh, started going to the Palo Alto VA as part of my, I was a combat medic, uh, 91 Alpha. So my job was to go to the Palo Alto VA and work on the weekends. Uh, that was my time seeing all of these veterans, mm. we, were, we are told to give everything to our country. And I saw firsthand what happens after. And I saw Black and Latino um, men, largely indigent, bed sores, had lived, living on the street, suffering from addictions. And I saw that. And so as a witness, it became very important after about four years and being in the reserves, and it wasn't even a choice for me to settle my heart and to, and to speak. And it took an incredible amount of personal courage for me to do that. I was frightened to be able to speak that piece. But what I came to is even though I had been trained in the military, even though I still to this day believe in serving this nation, and I still do, I want to serve honorably, I did not believe that a system of violence and I, I could not be part of a system of war. And so I was able to articulate that in 
in the language of love in a, the grand tradition. Like we have this tremendous justice tradition of Black Americans that I'm part of that articulates a nonviolent resistance. And I lived into that as a young person, as a young woman. And I understood the power of courageously advocating for love and justice, even when the system tells you you have no voice and you have no shot at changing things. And that has shown me both, not just personally, but that the ability to have to reach deep and find our courage to stand up for ourselves and other people is a capacity that every human being has. And that I've witnessed tremendous strength amongst um, the, the, the women, not only that I train with then, but that I work with now. Mm -hmm. And that there isn't anything in my life that's more important than taking a stand for love. And I don't mean this in a way that's like wishy-washy or surface. I mean the hard work, the hard work of living out loud in public your advocacy and love for humanity and the mm -hmm. way that that can show up in, in politics or your, or your life. So that is the thing that keeps me going. I mean, I'm going to tell you my dream. My dream is someday that the stories of women of color who have courageously stood up against slavery, against the degradation of people who crossed the border to work, against people who were pushed off to the side and denied rights who came from other parts of the country, that we, all those stories are told and that our country is understood as people who believed in love and believed in each other as a continue to build a country that's, that's worth living in, that's worth yeah. fighting for. And that's the politics. I call that heart politics or mm. love politics or mm. something. And I, I believe it so deeply. I believe in this work so deeply. It truly is the reason I was born, you know, and I get emotional when I think of it because it is a long journey for me as a 17 year old wearing battle dress fatigues and chanting to kill with no mercy mm. to be a person that says that we can fight for love and justice in this country. It's a long journey. And we're, talking about we go back and even as you were talking about it i was like i i don't think i've even put together all the pieces of the arc right and that so but i remember i remember when the gulf war broke out right when we were we were talking it's like well, what are you going to do and that's when you decided to become a conscientious objector and it's just really moving to hear you tie it together in terms of your current work and then i just you know i don't think we've said and i was i want to say just both how inspired and proud I am of how you've taken those values that work and now you're projecting it out into the national scene, into national politics. And so I just want to say that. Yeah, there's a constant source of inspiration for me. And I had uh, said to myself, Charlene, don't let Amy let you cry. <laughs> you, are, um, you are so authentic and you speak from such the heart and that work you do every day. I know you wake up for wanting to make um, this country, this world a better place. And your love is so, so grand and your, your belief and your faith and your hope in humanity. You know, I know, I think sometimes I get a little jaded too, but when I hear you speak, especially as a mother of uh, still a girl in this world, sometimes it's hard. It's hard to stay hopeful and feel positive. But when I hear you speak, I was like, yeah, you know, Amy's doing the work, great work out there. Um, I want to tell you a really quick story. I have a very good friend. Her name is Rachie Lee. She uh, was an immigrant when she came here. She was a young girl, came from Taiwan. 
And I invited her to the She the People initial conference in San Francisco. That was 2018. It blew her mind, as it did everybody who showed up to that amazing event. I remember her leaving and, and she went, oh my God, it was just, you know, hundreds of women, amazing speakers, very inspiring, like about getting women excited about running for office and getting involved on one way or another in our democracy. And she said, well, if that doesn't make you want to pick up a clipboard. Well, long story short, fast forward, she is running for Berkeley School Board oh, wow. and she's a mother of two and she has just found time to go and learn how to run for office. She is not somebody who comes from a political family or, you know, this is not part of what she thought she was going to do. But she has told me lately it was the She the People conference. She said it shaped me, it, it influenced me and inspired me so much that I felt like I need to do something and I need to get involved and I need to run for office. And I wanted you to know that because even though, you know, it's a small local race, it is, I, I bet for sure there are women all over the country whose lives you have changed who are then going to help change their communities and um, make our democracy stronger. It's so Thank beautiful. You so Thank you for right. my heart, my heart. Yes, it's everywhere. So we'll let you go, Amy. <laughs> you got, we appreciate your taking so the time. so great to have so you here. Thanks so much for being Thank us. you. Thank you both. All right. That was surprisingly deep and resonant to my head and fully expected. And so we really, really, really appreciate Amy taking the time. It was so great to actually catch up with her. Um, you can follow Amy on Twitter or on Instagram at A-I-M-E-E-A-L-L-I-S-O-N. Thank you for listening to Democracy in Color with Steve Phillips. Please help us get the word out about this podcast by subscribing wherever you get your podcasts, sharing with your friends, tweeting at Democracy Color and at Steve P. Tweets and finding us at Democracy in Color on Facebook or subscribing to our newsletter at democracyincolor.com. Democracy in Color is now on Instagram. You can follow us at Democracy in Color. And if you listen to our podcast on iTunes, please leave us a rating and a comment. This podcast is a Democracy in Color production produced by Olivia Parker with support from Charlene Chang, Fola Onifade, and April Elkier. Recorded virtually with the assistance of the podcast studio San Francisco, recorded on March 1st, airing on March 3rd, Recorded on March 1st, which is my dad's 90th birthday. So wow. happy birthday, dad. Until next time, keep the faith.